Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Namihi nui and welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance ho. Coming up on the show, we are all over the chemical element osmium and in search of the most boring chemical element. But first, we don't often do beer, the drink that is on the show, let alone science inspired by beer. But there's always a first time. To find out more, I'm off to a very interesting place at the University of Auckland to meet marine biology professor Andrew Jeffs and PhD student Alistair Harris. Before we explain what we're here for, we're going to talk about where we are, and I thought we'd do that by talking about the acoustic characteristics of the space we're in, because this is quite a quiet room, but it's not completely quiet, so this would be an average university room. What can you hear, Andrew? Yeah, I can hear some noise from the street outside. I can hear an extractor fan burbling away in the background. I can hear someone tapping on a keyboard. If I listen carefully, I can hear Alistair puffing from running up the road to get to this interview on time. There's two really interesting rooms here, so let's go into this one. And as we come into here, this is a room that reverberates and echoes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's got hard surfaces all around, and it's designed to uh, reverberate, basically. It's a noisy room. And so I take it this would be the complete opposite of what you were looking for in a sound space. Yeah, it's, it's not very good for what we're trying to do. If you're trying to control any sort of sound, you don't want it coming straight back at you, especially if you drop anything or something like that. So. Okay, well, let's just go back out of this room, and on the other side of the other room is a very interesting space. So back through one room and into a space that is completely the opposite. So what are we hearing, Andrew? Not a lot. This is meant to be the quietest place in New Zealand. All the sound from outside in the environment has been blocked off by giant sponge blocks in every direction you look. And those blocks are shaped in a particular shape to, to capture the sound and, and basically absorb it completely. So what is this room? So this is the anechoic chamber. Um, as Andrew said, it's really the quietest place in New Zealand. As you walk in, you can feel it on your ears. You come in and you can just notice all the sound drop off completely, which is quite a cool feeling, really. Hmm. It's odd because we're just so used to getting feedback via sound from our environment and there's just nothing here. Totally. Even just hearing you, you sound completely different because your voice, the reverberation that I normally helps me hear you has, has gone and it, I guess the timber, the resonance, the tone of your voice actually kind of changes as a result of being in this room. So what have you been doing in this room? Why were you looking for such a quiet, dead space? Well, we're looking at how sound affects the behaviour of yeast when it's fermenting beer. 
And to do that, you need somewhere to start with where there is no sound. So this is a, the perfect place to come because then any sound you generate, you can add sound as you like. But it's very hard to add sound when there's already a whole lot of sound already there that may be interfering with what you're trying to achieve. So it's, it's like the perfect control space for silence. So you've basically turned this place into a mini brewery. Yeah, effectively. The people who run the space were a bit shocked when we first came in, but I think they grew to love it a bit, yeah. So what's the idea? The the idea that somehow the yeast might be responding to different kinds of sounds? Absolutely. That we can add different types of sound and different loudnesses of sound and alter the way that the yeast behaves and potentially in positive ways that might help the quality of the beer so better flavours, or maybe improve the production in terms of perhaps speeding it up or helping finish the beer in a way that may not be possible using current commercial methods. So how did you go about testing all of this? So we have a uh, novel setup that we kind of developed and put together. So we basically have an underwater speaker, and we submerge that in, and we put our fermentations in water as well. So everything is maintained in a way that the sound doesn't have any kind of changes into air into glass that kind of thing we keep it keep it steady so that we can really control what's going on and get the sound going directly to the yeast so what kind of sounds were you playing so we're looking at the whole audible spectrum so we're kind of dividing it up based on some previous research we've seen and we're kind of just doing a broad scan to see what's really going on across the whole spectrum yeah so you're just using different frequencies different frequencies and also different intensities or loudnesses of sound so it could be very quiet sounds or very very loud sounds so understanding how those different aspects of the sounds may affect it once we've got a bit more of a handle on how those two things work we'll also be looking at how changing the sound through time may actually make a difference in terms of how the yeast yeast behaves and that's particularly important when you've got a fermentation process, when you're fermenting beer, it's usually done in a batch process, particularly for craft brewing, and the behaviour of the yeast changes as, as it grows through the ferment. As it gets more and more crowded, it gets more and more difficult for the yeast to make a living, and there's less and less sugar for them to burn. And so it may be that applying sound at different times in the process may also play a role for the yeast as well. So that's almost like you could compose a, a slow song for the yeast and it has certain notes at the beginning and certain loudnesses and then that changes and that keeps changing and it keeps changing for the entire process of the fermentation. Absolutely, like a yeast symphony that has a crescendo at the end that maybe provides the perfect finish, yes. It's also good with beer as well, with the different yeasts that get used and the different types of beer, you could potentially mix it up and change that sound specifically for the beer that you want to produce or the yeast that you were using. Craft brewers are starting to use different types of yeast. Who knows how it interacts. So for your experiment, though, did you just consistently use the same kind of yeast under exactly the same conditions so that the only thing that was changing was the sound? Yeah, that's correct. Using sound is kind of a bit of an out-there proposition, so we have to make sure it's as controlled as possible so we can really be sure that what we're doing is what's having the effect. So you must have had some interesting experiences working with the yeast in here? Yeah, when you're here alone, you really get to have a feeling of the fermentation. So you can pick up the bubbles coming out. It's quite a surreal experience just by yourself with no other sounds whatsoever. So those sounds you wouldn't normally hear just become magnified in this quiet space. Yeah, exactly. If you've ever opened a bottle of Coke, I'm sure you know what the sound of bubbles coming out. It's not something you normally hear in fermentation, 
but in this room you can really pick up those bubbles forming. Yeah, it's really cool. And when you get the sound going on as well, when you're actually applying the sound to the fermentations, it's a pure tone and you don't often realise how different sound sounds when it's isolated from everything else. So yeah, it's something. So were you seeing differences in the way the yeast responded at those different frequencies and those different volumes? For sure. We're seeing, particularly at this stage, we're looking at the difference between silence and sound. So we're showing that sound does have an effect. And as we move forward, we're going to kind of take apart the different sounds and see if how and if they individually impact that yeast. So are you excited by what you're seeing? Absolutely. If you have a look around, there has been virtually no work done in the, in the space previously at all, other than the work that's been done here. And we're getting some really interesting results, which we didn't expect either. And, you know, that's exciting, both scientifically, but also in terms of uh, making good beer. And the thing with fermentation is it's a very commonly used process for for making food, but also industrial chemicals and a lot of other things as well. So the research has a lot of potential to deliver benefits across a whole range of areas where fermentation is used. So what's your background? Is it microbes or sound or beer? So I come from a microbial background, I guess. I was working with an industrial fermentation laboratory in the University of Auckland as well. I've always, as I'm sure all students do, had a love of beer, homebrew and that kind of thing. And so this kind of lets me take my home passion and put it into a real environment where I can carry on learning and that kind of thing. Beer aside, the yeast must just be a useful model organism to work with. Uh, absolutely, because it's easy to, to store and to revive and it, it's, it's got a, a relatively simple you know, way of reproducing and developing. Mm. That's well known as well. We know a lot about its metabolic pathways, the way that it, it utilises the sugar resources and so that's a great background for us to be understanding how the sound actually changes some of those processes. Particularly in New Zealand where we have a lot of wine fermentation and there's a big wine science uh, department at the university so they have a really good understanding understanding of what's going on in fermentation so the using these yeasts lets us kind of apply some of that previous knowledge and helps make the picture a bit clearer as we go forward. So you got some funding from MB for this it's a three-year project what stage are you up to? We're in the second year at the moment the approach of the project was to try and in the way that Alistair explained, use experimental uh, techniques to try and isolate what characteristics of sound make a difference to yeast. And in doing that, trying to understand the fundamental processes of, of how the sound's interacting so that it makes it easier for then uh, going and applying it to other yeast strains, for example, and uh, perhaps adjusting the types of sounds we use for particular situations. So with that knowledge, in the third year, we're going to get to work with a, with a craft brewer garage project in Wellington, and we're actually going to apply some of those learnings to demonstrate that it works. So where did this whole idea come from in the first place? I mean, I'm thinking also that you have a background in marine biology, so this is a, something a bit different for you in that respect. Totally. My research to date has been looking at sound in the underwater environment. Again, it's an area where it's not very well understood, and we're just starting to get to grips with it. I've got quite a bit of equipment for recording and making sound underwater. And I had a call out of the blue from Garage Project saying they were working with the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra and they were wanting to put symphonic music into one of their brews to make a Viennese lager. So I helped them with that equipment to set it up and and make what turned out to be quite a remarkable beer. 
And so some of the unusual results from that fun project is actually what spawned uh, this quite significant research project. Would you get different results, do you think, if you played something like death metal instead of symphonic music? Well, it's funny you say that because Garage Project actually had its 666th brew after the Viennese New Zealand Symphony Orchestra project, and I thought they'd do something different. They still had my gear, and so they did death metal. I think it was 20 years of death metal uh, history at full volume. And the beer was very, very different, I can tell you that. So I think that's your field experiment done in one. I also get from this that you get to do some taste testing at the end. Well, it was quite interesting. I had some Viennese lager and some uh, death metal beer, and I took it to a uh, staff function just to, for people to taste it, and the whole lot went in a flash. So, yes, we do get to taste it, and the technicians here at the Anechoic Chamber have got to try a few of the brews as well. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. That was Andrew Jeffs from the Institute of Marine Science at the University of Auckland. We also heard from PhD student Alistair Harris. And this research is a collaboration with fermentation expert Silas Boas. Koto tato au horihori tenei. He hōtaka e pānaki te pūtaio, te taio me te kaupapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, let's continue with our exploration of the chemical elements as we mark the International Year of the Periodic Table. In this episode of the Elemental Podcast, Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology introduces us to osmium. So today, osmium comes from the Greek word osme, meaning a smell. And does it really smell? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. (laughs) <laughs> but, but firstly The we suspense will, is killing me I know, we will get to the smell thing But we have to do the vital statistics first Osmium is a transition metal Okay, elemental symbol OS And atomic number 76 That's putting it down In the third row of the transition elements In the periodic table It was first discovered in 1803 uh, Along with iridium When a guy by the name of Smithson Tennant found a residue when he took an impure sample of platinum and tried to dissolve it all in aqua regia. Most of it dissolved, some of it didn't, and that's how osmium came to be, essentially. And uh, he came up with the name because of the pungent and peculiar smell of its oxide, unquote. The compound he was talking about there is a thing called osmium tetroxide, and that's quite volatile. It's got a sort of an ashy and smoky smell, So you can form osmium tetroxide from the metal, little bits are being formed, and so therefore, yes, osmium does smell, yes, it deserves its name. Is being pongy its only claim to fame? (laughs) Oh, no, 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 there's many more things about osmium that we could talk about. First interesting thing is that it is very rare, and in fact, it is the least abundant non-radioactive element in the Earth's crust, which is kind of cool. To give you some idea of its rarity, so there's only a few hundred kilos, sort of between 100 to 500, depending on which book you read, that are produced annually. I like the fact that it's the least abundant non-radioactive element. That's like being famous for all the things you're not. (laughs) Yeah, fair point, fair point. So that's one of its claims to fame, but its biggest claim to fame is the fact that it is the most dense of all the elements at atmospheric pressure and room temperature. 
And so if you took a sphere of osmium that was the same size as a tennis ball, that would weigh around about three and a half kilograms, which really is very dense when you think about it. If you want to compare it to lead, I think most of us think that lead is pretty dense. The same volume of lead would weigh around about half of what uh, osmium does. So very, very dense. Tennis ball size, you sure as hell wouldn't want to actually play tennis with it, would you? (laughs) No. But anyway, that does make it, by my reckoning, the heavyweight champion of the elements. (laughs) Ding, ding. Sure does. But wait, there's even more claims to fame. The metal also rivals diamond as being the least compressible of all known substances, which is kind of cool. And uh, because it is very rare, it is quite expensive. So if you did take that tennis ball-sized lump of osmium, it would cost you around 75000 New Zealand dollars at current prices. Whoa, so that smell, <laughs> that's the smell of money Indeed. then. <laughs> but since it's so rare, so pricey, so dense, so incompressible, what do we actually do with it? Well, to add to that list of woes, the metal itself is also very brittle and it also melts at a very high temperature, just over 3,000 degrees Celsius, and that makes it pretty darn difficult to do anything with. But that's not to say it's without its uses. A guy by the name of Karl Auer in the late 19th century thought that the high melting point would be good to use in an electric light bulb. So he tried making osmium filaments for his electric light bulb. That was in 1897. Sadly, it didn't quite work for him. It sort of did, sort of didn't. But it got superseded by tantalum first, and then Edison came along with tungsten, and he was the one that made all the money. So on the basis of all of these features, if you want, of osmium, it's fair to say that the metal really isn't in much demand. So what then is it used in? Well, uh, we're going to the high end here, folks. So the very few uses of the element. First up, high price fountain pen nibs. Oh, we've done that before. Uh, We did, yes. Iridium. We we talked about that with iridium, absolutely right. And also clock bearings. In this age of digital clocks, they're probably going out as well. They're used in that because uh, osmium being very wear resistant. So that's the metal itself. Uh, In terms of compounds, we've already mentioned the most important compound of osmium. That's osmium tetroxide. And that was the smelly stuff that we were talking about. Very important, this is a colourless solid that you can form simply by heating the metal in the air. It's got a few uses. It can be used in certain organic chemistry reactions for the chemists amongst you. And if you really want to know, these reactions are called cis-dihydroxylations, which you'd probably know about had you studied first-year chemistry. Oh, you get on with it. (laughs) (laughs) Also used in fingerprint detection, quite an expensive way of detecting fingerprints, but quite good apparently. And it's also used as a stain in microscopy. Again, expensive. OSO4, osmium tetroxide, it is very volatile, and so you've got to take extreme care with it because it is highly toxic. And if you inhale it, uh, you will probably regret it. It certainly can kill you. And also the vapour is not good for the eyes, and that will also cause blindness if you come into too much contact with the vapour. So in my books, that means osmium is eye-watering in several ways then, (laughs) price and toxicity. Indeed. Now, when we did Iridium way back in episode 39, I think it was, we bemoaned the lamentable decline in the use of fountain pens and nibs these days. Mm -hmm. So I'm figuring that unless I commit a crime and have my fingerprints dusted, I'm really very unlikely to come across any of it in my everyday life. 
Yeah, that's probably very true. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned crimes there because given, as you say, it's eye-watering price that we talked about, it was very, very surprising that this compound was apparently going to be used in, of all things, a terrorist attack in the UK in 2004. You read the papers back then, and apparently a bomb containing osmium tetroxide was going to explode. It was going to spread the osmium tetroxide over a wide area. People were going to inhale it. They were either going to die or be blinded or both. And police ended up arresting nine people in connection with this. And despite my hard work on the internet, uh, very, very difficult to actually find out what happened to these people. A really weird, weird case, this. What a dense idea. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm glad they were foiled, I have to say. And I'm very pleased to have heard of the heavyweight champion of the chemical elements, but I think I can happily spend the rest of my life without actually coming across osmium or its oxides. Now, for another short elemental episode on the most boring chemical element. We interrupt normal transmission with a special piece of breaking news. I'll start with a question. What's one of the holy grails for any scientist, Alan? (laughs) Well, apart from saving the world or, you know, getting a Nobel Prize, we scientists pretty much live or die by what we publish. And so we want to be published where it matters, in a high-impact journal where lots of people will see the publication. And as a science broadcaster, I can tell you that there are some high-impact journals which everyone is always immensely proud to have on their CV. (laughs) And that's because it's very hard to get a paper accepted by them. So, Alan, what is your big news? So the big news is that because of having done this Elemental podcast series, myself and my partner, Rebecca Jelly, have just got a paper published in Nature Chemistry. (laughs) Woohoo! That's brilliant! Uh, What's the title of this paper? It's called The Most Boring Chemical Element. Can you please give us a short rundown, Alan? Okay, so I'll read the the tagline slash abstract for you. Could it be boron or borium that is the most boring? You'll need to read to the end to find out. (laughs) That's a great opening, but it doesn't tell me anything. Come on, spill the beans. Well, okay, so essentially we started off by defining the word boring, and um, so that automatically excludes some obvious candidates like, for example, phosphorus, you know, that bursts into flame uh, automatically in air, fluorine, that reacts with uh, every chemical element pretty much, uranium, it's radioactive, it's fissionable. So what we did was to look on... The Chemistry Index, which is called SciFinder, and this index is all of the papers that have ever been published in chemistry. And what we were looking at was the number of papers that every element on the periodic table had appeared in. I presume this tells you how many publications are associated with each element. Yes, indeed. And you were hoping that you could simply go, oh, that one's got hardly anything, it must be dead boring. That was the idea, yes, to begin with, yes. Right, so which (laughs) were the most and the least cited elements? So carbon, probably not surprisingly, had uh, around about 3.3 million citations, and the fewest was uh, francium with 2,392. So does that make francium the most boring element? Well, 
Well, no, it doesn't actually, because there's got to be a reason why francium is the element that is least cited in the literature. And so that obviously then makes it interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> so francium can't possibly be the most boring because it's the least cited. So, um, yeah, so, so straight away when we did this, we sort of uh, realised the shortcomings of this approach. So we had another go and we systematically appraised all of the elements on the periodic table. You mean at this point you realised you actually had to do some work? Uh, yes, exactly. You're, you're, you're so right. Yes, this wasn't going to end up as easy as we thought it would be. So what we did was then we went through group by group on the periodic table to find individual candidates. And again, having been through the Elemental podcast, there's something interesting about every damn element on the periodic table. We know that. And so really what we were looking for was essentially those elements that had the least interesting properties uh, or, you know, were, were really sort of middle of the road, boring, didn't do much sort of things. And on the basis of that uh, very, very, very scientific appraisal, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. we came down to a short list of six elements that we thought might vie for the title of most boring element. We reckon strontium, scandium, hafnium, praseodymium, thulium and protactinium. Right. I have to say the latter half of the alphabet is unfairly overrepresented <laughs> in that shortlist. But that aside, how did you go about eliminating the shortlist down to your one element? Well, that was really tough because then what we did was to go back to the number of citations that we got from SciFinder and sort of when we when we did that, we realised that we might have been overlooking some of the more interesting properties of these six elements. And certainly strontium, for example, had many, many, many more uh, citations on SciFinder than we'd actually uh, realised. And so, you know, further looking, deeper looking into the literature, found, you know, more interesting facts about each of these six elements. But, you know, there can be only one, I guess. So did you find one that you thought was the most boring element? Which was it? Ta-da! <laughs> Well, I'm not sure I should say, really. Um, Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Don't keep me in suspense. Well, if we went through our sort of systematic appraisal of all of them, then we might have thought that protactinium possibly would be the most boring element. However. However? Yes, however, however, protactinium has still got around about 4,000 or so citations on SciFinder. And what that means is that there are people who have studied and do study protactinium. Probably not as many people who have studied and do study carbon, but that's not the point. Protactinium is interesting enough for some people to want to study it. And so basically what we said was that there is no such thing as the most boring element. That gives it away, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Nicely dodged, Professor. That's the same principle as there's no such thing as an ugly baby. They're Mm. all beautiful to someone. Yep, yep. So somebody out there finds protactinium interesting and therefore it can't be boring. Indeed. It's a very philosophical distinction, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and being unpopular is not the same thing as being boring. I I totally think that's uh, very, very true. And, of course, we don't expect people to agree with us necessarily, and um, obviously everyone's going to have their own opinions on this. Thanks, Alan. 
That was Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. You'll find a link to that paper in the Most Boring Chemical Element episode of the Elemental Podcast, which you can find either as a podcast on your usual podcast app or on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Click on the podcasts and series link at the top of the webpage to find plenty of other RNZ podcasts as well. Keep in touch on Twitter and Facebook where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Moriora. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.